the best time of the day show. Now, as we just recently passed the festive season for another year, I'm just beginning to look at the, the sheer cost of the uh, event. Um, in our family, what we do is, uh, well, Mrs Lester, she's very keen on Christmas. She loves Christmas so much so that uh, the Christmas tree is the most important thing. It's it's a tradition. The kids decorate the Christmas tree, this sort of thing. And also in our family, it's basically it's the one thing, really, apart from the gifts that I I do. I don't do the food or anything like that or the wine or anything like that. No, I do that with, with my dad and my sister because I have a two-centre holiday, so I do the cheese and the biscuits for, my dad, for, the, for the Midlands end. But the London end, Kerry does all of it. So what happens then is I go and get the Christmas tree. Fair enough. And luckily, there is a Christmas tree farm. There's actually a local, it's an urban farm, which sells Christmas trees at this time of year. Uh, and so therefore, uh, we go up there and then, of course, there's the inevitable. Well, let's have a look at that one. That one, that one, that one, that one. Mm, bit bushy, not bushy enough. Bit sparse, too many branches. Mm, looks a bit lopsided, too tall, too short. And eventually, after about an hour, we get back to the first one, which was just, just fine. And on this occasion, I thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go and get the Christmas tree and we'll stick it in my car. Now, I have a Ford Midlife Crisis, which means it's got a soft top to it. And it, well, the sun was shining. It wasn't cold. It wasn't raining. So it, it, you go up anyway in your car. Cause you've got a mini. So you can't get a, a, a five foot, six foot Christmas tree in a mini very easily. So I've done it before. I said, no, you know, get pine needles all over it. Don't worry. I'll put the top down on my car and I'll be able to put it. Cause they'll wrap it up in that little netting thing and I'll put it in the passenger seat footwell and come back we're only half a mile away and it'll be absolutely fine stick it in the shed until the till the big day or close to the big day oh all right if you insist you insist so she set off in her mini and 10 minutes later i set off and driving along and there's the sign saying christmas trees this way up a little narrow track so i'm going up this little narrow track i just got you know those ones it's got sort of little stones and and a a bit of grass a tuft of grass all the way up the middle you know very very pleasant looking i'm driving a bang suddenly there's an almighty crash from underneath the car, and the whole of the front of the car lifted off the ground and banged back down again. Oh, blimey, what's that? So I drove up the rest of the 200 yards up to the Christmas tree, and I could hear this ruck, 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 ruck noise from something binding somewhere. I looked underneath. There was earth all over the place. And I looked back the way I came, and there were two cobblestones, which was just obviously I dislodged with something underneath my car. So, oh, blimey. Now, I have a friend, Craig, who runs a garage. And he says, well, I said, I banged something underneath the car. All right bring it in and we'll shove it up on the ramp and have a look okay fair enough so we got the christmas tree put it in the uh which actually you know it was that moment the moment had passed really for me and i remember kerry said to me one of the things i love so much about christmas is choosing the tree with you and you'd rather spoil it because you're in a vile mood i said well I just just bang the underneath of my car i don't know what's the matter with it it's making a very awful grinding noise so anyway i went back home went round to craig's place and he said leave it with me so i not have a cup of tea and obviously he put it on the ramp and the phone rings and he went what did you hit i went oh it looks like a couple of cobblestones oh blimey you have to leave it with us you know i said why there's so much damage going oh god i really don't want to hear this at all oh no and eventually it turns out that i'd hit this thing which had pushed the um exhaust system two inches up it had torn all the bolts off underneath and they went to the garage and it's a nissan this they went uh, you'll need a bolt kit 
this be a hundred and something pounds he says no we won't i've got plenty of bolts at my garage we'll do that so that was fine and uh the flexible bits in between the various parts of the uh of the uh exhaust system he managed to get some new ones and put those on and he did a bang up job it's actually great because of course the grinding noise was the exhaust system had been dislodged so much it was actually binding against the um the propeller shaft so therefore it was scratching against that that was terrible and also the subframe was bent into a u shape so i need to go and get one of those the official part uh, was 200 pounds how did it become the world's most expensive christmas tree well the christmas tree was 50 pounds uh when it was done it was evening so i had to get a taxi over there that was 12 quid and the actual repair even though it was done economically not with main dealer prices was 923 pounds so the thousand pound christmas tree is the most expensive christmas tree we've ever had and i hope ever likely to have One of the great joys of my job is I get to meet all sorts of interesting people, some famous and none so famous, and just a lot of interesting people. One person who was famous and was absolutely fascinating was the late Michael Benteen. And I was a big fan of the goons because he was in the early uh, goon shows and also the potty time and it's a square world where he was in the, that sort of thing that he was doing the models and stuff. So I always liked him. And he'd written a book about shyness. And so, therefore, the publisher sent me a copy. It had been on the radio. Would it be a good idea if you could interview Michael Benteen and plug the book? Said, yeah, of course. Because I, I was working in the North East at that point. And every so often, I'd go to London and do a whole load of interviews. And I went, OK, with the authors and what have you, and musicians and things. He said, well, I'm in London, you know, next week. All right, fine, I'll tell Michael and uh, I'll get back to you. So, all right, fair enough. Because normally what happens, you tend to meet someone at a, a hotel or at the publisher's office or something like that. And... Uh, uh, yeah, we've been on the. We've spoken to Michael. Uh, he says, uh, "Come out to his house." Oh, oh, that's fair enough. He lived out in Asia, so quite a swanky suburb. And he says he'll meet you from the station. So I turned up at the railway station. Sure enough, there is Michael Benteen in his car. Hello, hello. Back to his house. His wife gets us a cup of coffee, and this is about sort of ten o'clock in the morning. And we start talking about absolutely anything and nothing. And this was this marvellous conversation going on. And it's fabulous. There's Michael Benton. He's telling me about his career and also how when he was uh, in the RAF during the war, and this was really quite interesting, he could tell when he was doing the briefings for the pilots before they set off on their raids who wouldn't come back because he could see it on their faces. And that was fascinating. And I said to him, you know, what happens one of these days you're going to look in the mirror and you'll see that same thing on your face? He says, oh, no, I will. Yes, this is a really odd thing. And he'd lost a child, two children, I think, sadly. One, I think, in a plane accident and one due to cancer. So he would have seen that as well. And he was absolutely fascinating and just really good company. And uh, about 11 o'clock, his wife came in again. You know, how are you lads getting on? I was fine, thanks. Uh, by the way, Michael, don't forget, we're due for the, with the, the Parkinson's for lunch at one o'clock. Go, oh, yeah, fair enough. He says, oh, sorry. I said, do you want me to go? We must get down to do the interview. He said, no, 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 carried on, had another cup of coffee, carried on talking, talking about sort of uh, poltergeist activity and things like that. He says, well, you know, does it mean that every time you switch the lights out, you know, you're terrified that someone's going to bop you on the head? He said, it doesn't have to be dark, you know, even they can get you in the garden in the daytime. And he was absolutely fascinating. He talked about all sorts of stuff and talking about, you know, the goons and that. And he said, you know what? Spike Milligan was the sanest of the lot of the goons, believe you me. The little titbit came in about 12 o'clock. His wife says, look, we better go because the Parkinson's are expecting us for lunch. Yeah, yeah OK, fair enough. I said, oh, I better go. And I said, tell you what. He said, phone Michael and Mary and tell them we're not coming. And he said, I'm enjoying this conversation. Do you want to stay for lunch? I went, yeah, bloody right, I do. How was that? About four o'clock in the afternoon. He took me back to the uh, to the station. And uh, 
uh, it was one of the best days I've ever had. He was just a total gent, and his wife was lovely. Because when I went in to, to get to, to sit down for lunch, they were hugging each other in the kitchen. And he went, not bad for being married for sort of 40 years or whatever. She's still gorgeous. Oh, how lovely is that? One of the uh, things that I'll take with me to the, to the grave is the fact that I had the good fortune to be able to take a month off from time to time and I'd travel across America. And so I'd fly, the first one, I flew to um, Los Angeles, hired a car, it's got to be a Mustang convertible, drove up to San Francisco, round down to Bakersfield and across the Bible Belt, which is fascinating, and then got to Kitty Hawk on the East Coast, then drove up through uh, New Jersey up to New York and then flew back. The second one flew to Los Angeles, then went down to San Diego, all the way down to um, San Antonio, Texas, then drove right the way up the middle to Niagara Falls, then out east to Maine, down through Boston into New York. And the third one, I went to Seattle, drove through Wyoming and all that sort of big sky country, and then drove, I was freezing cold, because it was still, that's uh, that's another podcast in the future, by the way, that is. And then drove straight down the middle to, um, uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, and then drove down to the Florida Keys, then drove back up again, collected Kerry, who I had only just met at that point. She'd flown into uh, Orlando. And then we went to Nashville and went up through New Jersey again to Asbury Park and then into New York. So this is marvellous. And each each trip was about five, 6,000 miles. But, you know, it's fine because if you're on the interstate where the, you know, if you're in Texas, for instance, it's 80 miles an hour on the interstate. So an hour later, you are 80 miles further along. There's no traffic, so that's fine. But I would stop. I had no plan of where I was going to go. All I know is I wasn't going to go to any of the really big cities because you can fly there directly, so I could pick those off later on. I wanted to go to the bits of America where people never went, so much so that I always went to... A uh, conspiracy theorist would wonder why, if they overlaid all three maps, why I always ended up in Iola, Kansas, which is a, well, it's even even a one-horse town. It's a half-horse town. And, and I stayed at the Crossroads Motel on every occasion. They'd never heard of the show, but uh, not my show, the television show, The Cro- Crossroads. But on one occasion, I was in Colorado. And uh, a friend of mine said, oh, I know what you'll do. You'll do what you do basically in England. You'll find a bar every evening and just sit there. Yep. And you'll read the local paper. Yep. Certainly will. So I ended up in Canyon City in Colorado. So there am I, I'm in Canyon City, sitting at this bar, reading the local paper. I'd booked into a motel, a few drinks in there, burger joint, massive food. Thought, right, fair enough. I was blogging as well. You can still see them there on the internet, the Alex Letters American Adventure blog. And there's photographs and all sorts of stuff. So about 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know, I'm full of beer, feeling no pain, back to the motel. Another couple of cans, write out my blog for the day, post that on the internet, go to sleep. About two o'clock in the morning, all hell broke loose. It was the loudest I've, noise I've ever heard in my life. Things shook, pictures rattled, some of them came off the wall. Oh God, what's going on here? You know, has there been an explosion? Is the world ending? No. A train was going through town because Canyon City was only there because of the railroad. And the railroad was about 100 yards away from the motel. And then I looked, switched the light on. Thank God, okay, and it was. They blew the whistle, that lonesome whistle, as well as the... And they, these things are a mile long. And there was this 
but they keep blowing these things every time they got near a level crossing they had to blow the horn and of course you go through town there's quite a lot of streets so there they go oh my god the racket they racket rattle 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 and then i noticed next to the fire escape instructions on the back because i was on the ground floor as well on the, the the fire instructions was another little notice saying be aware that we are on the railroad track and trains run through this town 24 hours a day and uh, it honestly I, I was fast asleep and i've never been my heart was just a humming it was going so fast the best time of the day show is back monday please please stay Best time of the day show is a loading zone production. La di da.